need. Um, would turn me to Mark 5, 1 through 20, or you can just follow up along there. It's probably easier. Uh, one thing I'll say is, RUF normally sends out uh, emails once a week. Uh, yesterday we found out that a lot of them were going to spam folders. So if you, have, if you sign up for our email list and you haven't gotten an email in a while and you're like, what's the deal with that? Check your spam folder. It's probably in there, along with a letter from a Nigerian prince or something like that. <laughs> Check it out. Uh, also, what do y'all think about Genome? How do y'all like that? I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I love the mint seats. I'm married to a graphic designer. Mint's really hot right now. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, one thing we talk about here at RUF is uh, the principle that God is at work. God is at work, God is at work. And it feels sometimes like, uh, or it's felt like that for me anyway, that uh, he is at work this year. Um, in spite of our efforts, sometimes uh, helping our efforts. We're supposed to have a cookout. It got rained out, uh, which is a bummer. But I've talked to folks who are becoming Christians and who are, God is doing a lot of work in their lives right now, so that's amazing. Uh, we didn't plan on being in Genome this year, but it just kind of worked out that way. Not anyone's fault, but here we are. And it's actually pretty sweet. This is actually part of God's work, so I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, that's not living and being fatalistic, but that is living by faith with the expectation that God will work even in our disappointments or even in the times when we're not sure what's happening. Um, so yeah, so let's get started. Um, this year, Katie and I have been taking a lot of road trips, and as we've been doing road trips, we've been listening to uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire on our iPhone. <laughs> it's a pretty sweet book. Uh, I don't know what your opinion of Harry Potter is. In my mind, if you were to replace a wand with a lightsaber, it'd be pretty much the same story, uh, so I don't have any problem with it. Um, but if you don't know the story of the Goblet of Fire... Harry is up to another one of his shenanigans. It's another year at uh, Hogwarts. And this year he's been entered in the Triwizard Tournament. It's between him, two other schools. He doesn't know who's entered him in, who's entered him in or why, but he's in. And he gets to the first two challenges relatively unscathed. But then he gets to the third, final challenge. And it's a maze of challenges. There's riddles. There's people popping out from my corners. Sinister bushes. Things like that. And... Uh, Finally, he's Harry Potter. He gets through the maze. He touches the Goblet of Fire to win. But what he doesn't know, shocker, is that the Goblet of Fire has been enchanted so that when he touches it, he's sent to a spooky graveyard. That's right. Uh, this whole thing has been a trap. And J.K. Rowling, you sly, sly devil, you got me. I did not see that coming. <laughs> you got me again. Uh, and I won't tell you what happens at the graveyard, but this is what you need to know. Harry gets tied, tied up by a guy named Wormtail. And he's going to use some of Harry's blood. It's, this is a very sinister, dark magic thing. He's going to use some of Harry's blood to bring uh, the evil Lord Voldemort back in his body. Which, uh, his body had somehow gotten blasted by a baby Harry Potter like 14 years earlier. I never understood how that worked. Uh, I haven't read any of the books. It happened though. So to, to bring Voldemort back and have his body back, uh, he needs three things. He needs... Uh, the bones of Voldemort's pops, his dad, which are conveniently buried in said spooky graveyard. Uh, he needs some of Harry Potter's blood because there's nothing that uh, says to your enemies, gotcha, like using their bodily fluids to bring yourself back from the dead. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and here's the part that, you know, you may have thought, like probably gave Wormtail some pause when Voldemort floated out there. But, he need, but Wormtail has to cut off his own hand. And sacrifice, uh, sacrifice that to get Voldemort's new body, which he does. And it's a pretty bloody mess. There's no more clapping for Wormtail for a while. Uh, that part gets pretty messy. 
Sorry. <laughs> Hand jokes, sorry. Uh, and I think that, I personally think that Wormtail, as I read this and listened to it, I think that Wormtail is one of the most tragic figures in the whole Harry Potter series. Uh, why do I think that? Uh, because he can't stand Voldemort. He hates Voldemort. He's revolted by every time he sees him. Uh, he lives in fear of him. Voldemort makes him betray his friends. He made him live as a pet rat for like 13 years. It's pretty humiliating. Uh, that's emasculating, in case you didn't know. <laughs> he, doesn't even have to, he doesn't even get to keep his real name, uh, which is Peter Pettigrew. He's Wormtail. He's lost his name. He's lost his identity. And you can tell that Wormtail is terrified of Voldemort uh, and that he hates him, and yet he betrays his friends for him. He gives up his identity. He cuts off his own hand for what? Uh, for in the end, Voldemort kills him. What is Wormtail? What's his role in Harry Potter? He's a slave. And he's a slave, and the bars of his confinement are not around him. They're in his heart. They're in his mind. He's ruled by an evil supernatural power, by Voldemort, and he hates himself for it. And what's so powerful about myths and fairy tales and really good fantasy stories by British authors is that they can cast a pretty stark light on our own true condition. People tell them because they reflect something of our own experience, something of the experience of our lives. And that's powerful. That's profound in our lives. You know, what's so terrible about slavery? What's so horrible about it? It's that you can't help yourself. So you belong to something else, body, mind, and soul. You can't free yourself. Have you ever found yourself doing something over and over again that you hate, that you despise, and nothing makes you feel weaker or more helpless than doing this thing? After each time you do it, you tell yourself, okay, okay, I mean it. That was the very last time. And then a couple of hours or a couple of days or a couple of weeks go by, and you're back at it again. And it's this terrible cycle where you feel absolutely weak and you hate yourself and then your thinking or your actions, they start to build back towards that thing, whatever it is. Some relationship with a girlfriend or the boyfriend, pornography, alcohol, maybe even drugs. And you can watch yourself starting to put back on those shackles. But you feel absolutely helpless. And then you go back to that thing and you hate yourself. But at the end of the day, you keep coming back to it over and over and over again. And maybe it started out where that thing served you, where you were bored, you were stressed out, you were insecure. And it was exciting. And it relaxed you and it made you feel strong. But now you don't really have any control over it. And it used to serve you, but now you serve it. What is that? It's slavery. And yeah, there's something chemical about that. There's something biological about that. But there's also something deeper, something spiritual about it as well. Because we're embodied spirits. We're matter and we're soul, right? And there are real powers. There are real spiritual evils which will rule over us if they can. But at the end of the day, everybody's going to serve something. And here, here in Mark 5, I want us to see that only Jesus rescues us from evil to serve God. So as we read tonight, we're going to focus on two really basic points. What does Jesus save us from? And what does Jesus save us into? What does he save us to? What does he save us from? Before we begin that though, uh, I'm going to say this about demons and the devil. Uh, I didn't go to seminary. 
super excited to talk about the devil. <laughs> That's not my thing. But uh, I will say this, that neither good or evil is impersonal. And for a lot of modern people like us living in the West, uh, here at UNC, this may be hard to stomach because it seems sort of superstitious. Kind of the stuff of horror movies, the stuff of gargoyles and old churches. Satan, uh, we're kind of told or taught or assumed that Satan is this kind of personification, maybe, of psychological forces from kind of a pre-scientific age. However, Mark doesn't treat Satan as a myth. The Bible doesn't treat Satan as a myth. I'm not going to treat Satan as a myth here either. I say this, that just as there's a real God who's extraordinarily powerful, extraordinarily wise, extraordinarily good, there's also a real devil with real power. And he is immensely powerful. He is immensely intelligent. And to stand against him is not possible in our own strength. He's not anywhere nearly as great as God. They're not black and white trying to cancel each other out. Uh, yet he is a lot more powerful than we are. And you know, you can read history where it seems like people are kind of chugging along, nations are kind of going someplace, not doing too much, and then suddenly they just go nuts, don't they? Kind of the, the classic example of this is the rise of the Nazis in Germany. You have an educated, kind of modern Western European civilization. They've got their problems like everyone else. But then they just kind of grab the wheel of that car and they just steer off a cliff. And in a few years, they started World War II. They committed the worst atrocity in human history, the Holocaust. Over six million people die. Uh, do people possess natural evil? Yes. Are there awful political and social structures? Absolutely. But there's also a real personal spiritual evil too. And basically, you can make two mistakes here. Either you can kind of see the devil hiding behind every bush, waiting to kind of jump out at you, get you. Or you can close your eyes to the reality that if there is real personal good, then why not also real personal evil? So that's kind of my take on demons, the devil, all that sort of stuff as we preface this. So to start off, what does Jesus save us from? Let's look at Mark 5, 1 through 13. Uh, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to him what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. 
Let me pray for us real quick. Father, in a room this size, I know there are a lot of people who are super skeptical of you. There are people who are skeptical, especially of the existence of real spiritual evil, the devil, of demons, of the power they might have over us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would keep us from uh, overly fearing them. I pray you would keep us from overly looking for them behind every bush. But Lord, I do pray that you would also help to warn our hearts against that spiritual evil. God, that we would turn to you, that we would be healed, we'd be cleansed. Lord, that we'd be set free to be the people that you made us to be. We'd be set free to worship you, to know you, to follow you, wherever that might be. God, would you be with us tonight? Would you heal us? Would you make us whole? In your son's name we pray. Amen. So how do we see uh, the influence of personal evil here? Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. That man, he lives among the tombs. He has superhuman strength, but it makes him less of a person instead of more of one. He's, not, he's nobody's relation. He's nobody's friend. He's utterly alone. He cries out. He hurts himself self with stones. He hates himself. In a lot of ways, he's trying to destroy himself. He is totally caught by forces beyond his control. And you know, for us, when we struggle with addictions to things like sex or substance abuse, or even the praise of people where that sort of, hey, you did a good job there, becomes a thing that we want above all others. So at the end of the day, that job isn't really what we care about. Um, not even because we love it, but we, what we care about is that praise, that, that sense of wholeness that comes from that. And so it's important to remember here that there's not just a chemical or a biological connection to those things, even though there is. Obviously, sex, alcohol, drugs do something to your brain. There's also spiritual There's something in our spirit, our soul, that gets bound up in this stuff. And whether that's because of the operation of our own heart and simply wanting to sin, or because there's this outside spiritual evil, we have no power to fight these things on our own. You know, you can try to face down your own demons, but it's really not any use. It's impossible because it's just not just a physical or a mental or a psychological thing. It also has to be spiritual. On our own, we don't have the spiritual strength to do so. We're bound up. It's like if you went to one of those kind of David Blaine magician performances and you got called up on stage and he wrapped you up in a straight jacket and he wrapped that in a big heavy metal chains and he turns you upside down up over kind of a tank of water and he said, all right, you've got about two minutes to figure out how to break out of this water or you'll drown. What would you say to that? I think if it was me, I'd say, uh, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> eject, eject, eject. I don't know how... And I'm not Superman. I can't break out. And that's exactly our spiritual condition too. Um, AA, which is Alcoholics Anonymous, has been doing pretty well for itself since the 1930s. It has a big book called uh, The Big Book, actually. That's the name of it. It's not that creative. Uh, (laughs) And it's got a section on it in there on belief in a higher power. Uh, This is not a Christian organization. Anyone's allowed to come in. They're not going to talk to you about Jesus if you join AA. But these are people who've been going for almost 100 years, helping a lot of people get over an addiction to alcohol. And they write this in their, their big book, their principal book. It says, If a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, and you can insert really anything in there you want to, many of us would have recovered a long time ago. But we found that such codes and morals did not save us no matter how much we tried. 
We could wish to be moral. We could wish to be comforted philosophically. In fact, we could will all these things with our own might. But the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources, as marshaled by our will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Obviously, that's them, that's not me. But where and how are we to find this power? Where do we find this power? You know, Jesus, last week in Mark 4, talked about binding the strong man. He talked about going into someone's life, going into someone's heart, and binding up those things that that person can't control. But where do we as people try to find that power? Look at verses 3 and 4. Other people had tried to bind this man. You know, they put him in shackles, they put him in chains. Why doesn't anyone have the strength to subdue him? Why doesn't anyone have the power to overpower that guy? Because all their effort is focused on external condition, their power, the things they can control. But they never deal with the main problem, do they? That man's spirit. They're spending all their effort on how strong he is, how out of his mind he is. But they're not dealing with the fact that he's possessed by demons, or that he has something he can't overcome. And we read that, and maybe we say, oh yeah, I've seen this like a hundred times in movies. Grab the priest, grab some holy water, uh, hold a crucifix up to this guy, and we'll call it a day. Um, We don't really put that much stock in those things. But then at night when we go home and we try to battle our own demons, we fall down on our face, don't we? We spend huge amounts of time in front of our computers, alone in the dark. We agonize over our resume, and we wonder why we never feel good enough. Or why we're so daggum lonely. Or we keep telling ourselves that we're not, that we're just sad and we're not really depressed, but then we don't get out of bed for like four days. And we act like if we just got in the right small group or we just read the right book or we finally started to have a consistent quiet time, then we could probably lick this thing. But if the problem was more discipline, don't you think after all this time you would have gotten there? That you would have mastered that thing? I mean, how much time have you put into this, that stuff? You know, the reason that you hate yourself so much when you fail in this is because the shame you feel over the fact that you really don't have the discipline necessary to pull this thing off. You don't really have the power necessary to liberate yourself. You know, if there was some formula, don't you think somebody would have come up with it by now? But those things aren't possible because it's a spiritual problem. Because you have to deal with your heart before the Lord. And you don't have the power in yourself to deal with those spiritual problems. Because the biblical witness is that by nature we are spiritually dead, spiritually sick, spiritually bound. And in some way we all know that, don't we? Otherwise, why do you get so frustrated when you go to those, back to those things that you hate? Because it highlights how powerless you are. Because it makes you feel that weakness that you hate so much. And there isn't a formula to this. And that's what's terrifying to us. Why is that? Because at the end of the day, we want to have the power to fix ourselves. We want to say to ourselves, okay, I'll learn the formula to fix this thing. I'll master this technique. And when I do, then I'll be better. I'll be the person in charge of healing myself. And what's behind that fear? Look at verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. You know, here's a basic principle for everybody. That everybody in some deep, deep, deep way is desperate to be known, is desperate to be healed, and yet at the same time they are absolutely 100% terrified of that too. 
This man wants healing. He rushes to Jesus. It says earlier, immediately, as soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, he goes to him. Why does he do that? For healing, right? Because he wants to be free. Yet what does he say? Don't torment me. And he's caught between these two poles. Over here, there's this longing to be healed. And over here, there's this intense fear that if the person with real power came into their life, he would destroy them. And we get caught in between that fear. God, what will you do to me if you see me? What will other people do to me if they really knew me? In the deep, dark, secret places in my heart. Would I be destroyed? Would I be healed? Or would you comfort me? And as we struggle to figure out who Jesus is and what sort of power he really has, we have to ask ourselves, can he handle my demons? Does he have the power or I do not? Can I hand him the really miserable parts of my life? Can I hand him the really broken parts of my heart? You see, we're afraid that if we hand control of our lives over to him, that he will use that power to torment us, to call us in something we can't handle, to break us open and never heal us. To answer those questions, we have to ask ourselves, what kind of character does Jesus have? What sort of person is he? Will he use his power to heal me or to destroy me? To put me back together or to make me feel my shame? Because the issue is not, does he have the power, but how will he use the power? Lots of people have experienced powerful healing from God, but our fear is always, yeah, but what if I'm not one of those people? That takes us to our second point. What does Jesus save us into? I'm going to read Mark 14 again. And the herdsmen fled and told him the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim to Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You know, first of all, Jesus saves us from ourselves. He saves that man from himself, from his own power, from his own suffering. And he has the power to do that. He casts these demons out without any trouble. He saves people. But what does he save them to? Notice that that man wants to get in the boat with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Not for you. Go home. Go back to the place where I made you to be. Go back to your family. Go back to your friends. Go back to your profession. And you know, here at RUF, people ask me a lot of times, what does RUF stand for? It's a weird name, isn't it? Why didn't we pick like the well or the giving tree or something like that? Something super nondescript, super non-generic. <laughs> Why do we pick RUF or rough or whatever, you, however you say it? Part of that is because uh, when we say reformed, what that R means, is that we care about your work, that we care about your profession. You know, my hope is that not everyone here would enter into vocational ministry, that not everyone here would be a campus minister, that not everyone here would be a missionary. My hope is that a lot of y'all would go and be really good accountants, really awesome business people, amazing doctors, really ethical lawyers. Because you, as you sit in the seats tonight, are the next generation of the church. You're the next generation of leaders in the world. You're the next mother that prays with her kids before they go to bed. 
You're the next dad that loves that mom well because he knows that Jesus has loved him well. And when God sets you free, he often sets you free to do the thing that he made you to do. And for some of you, that's going to mean going into vocational ministry, going and being a missionary in Africa. For a lot of you, that's going to mean going and working a good job here in the United States and having friends and having colleagues and having a family that you love. You see, God sets us free to be the person that he made us to be. This guy with the demons, he wasn't supposed to have demons. That's not part of God's plan. That's why Jesus heals him. And when God sets you free from addictions, when God sets you free from pain and brokenness, he sets you free to do the thing that he made you to do. And that might be being a really good accountant. That might be mean being an awesome nurse or a super good doctor. Or maybe just a mom who loves people well and cuts the sandwiches diagonally and then like the edges off the sandwich. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but God sets you free to do that. He smiles on your work. He smiles on that. He sets you free to do those things. And that is wonderful. And that is good. That's what He sets us free to do. Also notice that Look at this man's old life and look at this man's new life. Back in the day, he's possessed by demons. Now he's clothed. He used to live among tombs in unclean, horrible places. If you live in a graveyard, there's something really wrong with you, right? But now he can go home. He can go back to his friends. He can return to community. You see, Jesus does have the power to heal people. He's not going to annihilate sinners. That's not what he came to do. He uses his power to heal people But for that man, for us, there's a cost that comes with that healing. What do I mean by that? That man, when he gave gave into that healing, he gave up some of his power. He gave up the ability to just go and live in the tombs and just do whatever he wanted to do whenever he wanted to do it. Nobody got in his way. Nobody bugged him. Now he's going back to community with friends. and He's going to have to live by some rules, isn't he? He's going to have to wear clothes. It's a big deal. (laughs) Uh, nobody could subdue him. People bound him with chains. He had all this power, and there was a certain amount of power that came with the fear that people had in him. And yet he has to give that up to become a regular man, to be clothed in his right mind. And this is how this part of the story pushes us, is what will it cost you to give up your secret sins and your addictions? What will it cost you to be healed? Because... Make no mistake about this, those things do give you something. And it might be just momentary freedom from pain, from anxiety, from worry. That sense that even though you're, you feel powerless like 99% of the day, that when you choose whether or not to eat, you have some power. Can you give that power up to be better? If you don't, then where will you be? Be alone by yourself in unclean places? Kind of the cemetery of your life? What would it take for you to be healed? To give those things up costs you something, doesn't it? You'll have to deal with what drives those demons. The sense that you're never man enough, maybe, but when you click that mouse, those women don't care. The sense that you feel so weak, so fragile, but when you binge and then purge, at least then you're strong. Or the fact of the matter is that whether or not you want to admit it, this isn't just a psychological issue. There isn't just family issues here. There's a spiritual component to this as well. And you can't just... Read an author, you need to learn a program. You've actually got to hand your heart over someone else. That person with power, like AA talks about. So the real issue at hand is this. What kind of person is safe to do that with? 
Can you hand your broken heart over to Jesus and be sure that he will heal you instead of destroy you? Because that's the question at hand, isn't it? What will he do with your heart? What will it cost you to be healed? You know, my granddad uh, passed away two springs ago at the age of 85. Before he did, I got the chance to travel from St. Louis, where I was living, all the way back to Abbeville, Alabama, where he lived his entire life. As I walked into his room in the nursing home uh, where he was dying, I was really shocked by how thin and how frail he'd become. He'd always been this really tall, broad, red-headed farmer with these big hands who smoked cigars and chewed red man tobacco like every moment of the day. Um, But as I saw him lying in bed, I thought about the kind of man that he was. I felt really torn. I knew that he and my dad had always had a really complicated relationship. Um, We'd never been allowed to kind of spend the night at my granddad's house where he lived with my step-grandmother, a woman that we called Nana. She and my dad had always had a really bad relationship. Dad was the product of my grandfather's first marriage, and she'd always kind of seen him as a threat. And granddad had sided with her to kind of keep things quiet at home. And so that had been really hard on my dad and granddad's relationship. And when my dad moved back to Alabama to start his practice as a doctor, granddad had approached him and told him that he'd lost all the family land that our family had farmed for like 200 years in Alabama. See, my grandfather was an alcoholic, and he made a lot of moonshine whiskey in the backwoods of Alabama, uh, but that had kind of gotten away from him, and he had lost the farm, which brought a lot of shame from the family. Um, What was crazy about when he approached my dad was that earlier, my dad had decided he wanted to be a doctor instead of being a farmer. My grandfather had really disowned him. He'd cut him out of his will. He'd cut him off relationally. Uh, and so I knew these things as I walked into the, into the nursing home room. On top of that, also my granddad was this really terrible racist. Like he'd struggled with racism his whole life, and it was really, really awful to hear him talk about people at times. And so as I'm sitting there talking to him, I'm feeling the weight of this, and, but he's also dying of lung cancer. He's my granddad. So I've got all this baggage there with his alcoholism, his racism, all the terrible things that he'd done to my father. Uh, and through that, kind of to me as well. But as I sat down with him that morning in the nursing home, he was more lucid than he'd been in a while. And he took my hand in his big, kind of wrinkled farmer's hands. They were always sunburned. He was a redhead his whole life, and uh, his hands were always sunburned. And he said, read me something from the Bible. Tell me about Jesus. You see, my grandfather had lost all of our family land to drinking um, But when dad became a doctor, he bought that land back and gave it to my grandfather. And that was really, I think, the first time he tangibly experienced grace in his life. That he had done these shameful, horrible things. That he would really brought a lot of dishonor on himself. That he really, in a lot of ways, ruined his life and the lives of other people. That someone would buy this land back and give it to him. It was a real Jean Valjean moment for him. And so that that was huge, because after that, he had never touched another drop of alcohol. He had tried to repent of the ways he hurt my father. Um, He'd really tried to have a good relationship with him at the end. In fact, he even tried to repent of the way that he treated uh, the poor African Americans in his community. He'd started to invite them over for dinner and lunch sometimes, to spend time with them, to hang out with them. He'd always been a kind of yellow dog Democrat. 
And I think that uh, he had to reconcile the fact that if he was going to vote for a black president, he had to like black people, which is really good for his heart, I think. Um, but as he held my hand that day and he was dying of his lung cancer, he asked me to read to him everything that I knew from the Bible about Jesus and the resurrection. And he said in this kind of gruff, kind of cigar-stained voice, he said, I'm going over the water. I'm going over Jordan. He knew he was dying. I really had to wrestle with the fact that God saves sinners, and real sinners. Not just people who kind of have their act together and then sort of need, to, need Jesus to fill in the rest, but like real sinners. People who lose the family land, people who are racist, people who are alcoholics, people who have demons. We struggle with that. And some of y'all might be sitting there thinking that an old alcoholic racist farmer who disowned his son and disgraced himself by losing family land didn't deserve to be laying there calling on the name of Jesus. And you know what? You're right. You're right. Because racists don't deserve Jesus. Alcoholics don't deserve Jesus. I don't deserve Jesus. Nobody deserves Jesus. But you know what? God saves racists. And he saves addicts. And he saves people who are possessed by demons. And he saves people who are a disgrace and a failure and who are shameful. Because the gospel isn't, if you get better, then I will make you well. The gospel is not, on your own, you can make it. The gospel is you are spiritually bound, you are crippled, you are spiritually dead, and Jesus takes our place so that we can be free. Chronologically, y'all, we are in... We're almost a third of the way through the book of Mark, and it's week four <laughs> for school. But where do you think that Jesus is going when he runs into this man? He's going to the cross. He's casting out demons, but on the cross he takes on the devil, and he wins. And not only does he win on the cross, but on the cross Jesus takes our place in the dead places, in the broken places, in the places where people are unclean, in the places where people are cast out. We might be bound by chains, but he is nailed to a piece of wood. And on our own, we are killing ourselves, but he submits to death for us. Because of our addictions, because of our shame, because of our selfishness, we forfeit community. We drive people away, don't we? But he gives up those things to bring us into fellowship with himself and with God. And you may be struggling with pornography. You may be struggling with substance abuse. You may be struggling with body image. But the first thing you've got to struggle with is this. Can Jesus cure me? Does he save sinners? Does he have the power? Because you certainly don't. I think you face that. I think a lot of us know that we don't have that power. Not on our own. But if God is Lord of the cross, if he is the Lord of racist cattle farmers, if he is the Lord over demons, then he can be the Lord over your demons as well. And we can struggle with that. You might be sitting here thinking, I don't know where to even start with that. That's fine. Pray that. He loves to hear those prayers. Of Lord, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to begin. Will you help me? Will you be with me? He loves to answer those prayers. Because he's the God that has mercy on people. He's the God that makes people whole. If you want that mercy, it's here. It's available. It's right here with you. In Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are the God that makes us whole. You are the God that makes us uh, real human people. Lord, that we could be free from our demons. We could be free from the things that bind us. We'd be free to follow you and to know you, to be healed by you.
Thank you that you have mercy on sinners. Thank you that you work in our hearts. God, would you do that tonight? Would you continue to work in our hearts through your word and through your spirit, through the fellowship of people here, through the brokenness of people here, through the honesty of people? Lord, would you move and set people free? In your sons, let me pray. Amen.